So if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Psalm 24. How we doing, Brother Brent? Good? All right. So it's a, it's a privilege, it's an honor always to be able to open up the Word of God and just to um, say what God has uh, said to me for your behalf. And um, it's always a challenge to know what the Lord, what, what sermon He wants me to preach especially when haven't had the opportunity, Brother Ed, to, to preach in quite a while, and uh, the Lord's given me a few ideas and a few lessons, and uh, thought maybe it was going to be one of those, but the Lord gave me something different this morning, but uh, or this afternoon. I want to um, say that I, I think that the Lord has been directing this way because of the preaching that Brother Roger has been doing um, how the Lord kind of changed directions for him this past uh, Sunday and, uh, and, and, and before that as well, where he started preaching on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's where, um, where the Lord led me to tonight, and that's what I want to preach about, is about him and about uh, encourage you. Uh, hopefully uh, through that is, is my goal, but ultimately it is to exalt our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this Psalm uh, 24... Uh, In the lesson tonight, I call, Who is this King of Glory? That's the question that's asked in this psalm. And we're going to answer that tonight, Brother Ed, as we go through this this, uh, lesson and through this psalm. So this psalm is part, really, of a a, a trilogy, okay? And I don't know if you've ever looked at it like that, but, but you have Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. And, uh... If anybody's familiar with Psalm 23, it's called a Messianic Psalm. Well, that'll tell you something about it right there. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But specifically, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ being on the cross, about Calvary and about our, uh, his, Him paying for our sin. And you'll see uh, verses in there, and I'm just going to share a couple of verses about it. Like, uh, look at verse 14 of Psalm 22. And it says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, and it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Those are story, those are, are portraying the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And what a what a picture we have here in this psalm of his dying on the cross and being the payment for our sin. And so, Psalm 22 is about the past and the Lord Jesus Christ, and about Calvary, and about Him being our Savior, and, and, the, and fulfilling what He said in John chapter 10, verse 11. Remember what He said? I am the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd does what? He lays down His life for the sheep. And this is the Lord, Psalm 22 is the Lord Jesus Christ being the good shepherd and laying his life down for the sheep and being our Savior. And then we got Psalm 23, and of course everybody's familiar with Psalm 23, right? And again, we have a shepherd here, but this shepherd is not the, the good shepherd that lays down his life, but it is the great shepherd that was talked about in Hebrews chapter 13. Let's turn there, hold your place, we're coming back to Psalm Spend most of our time in there, but tonight is Bible study. Let's look at what it says in in Hebrews 13, 
about our great shepherd. And of course, we look at Psalm 22 as being a psalm of the past in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Psalm 23 is a psalm of the present. And it is our great shepherd tending to his sheep. Look what it says here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. It says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting atonement, look at verse 21, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we see that great shepherd who, who really is working in us and through us, and really God is using the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives to bring us through this life in a way that will please Him and bring Him honor and glory. And then we get to Psalm 24, and guess what? This is a psalm about the Lord Jesus Christ as King. We saw Him in the past as Savior. We see Him now as Shepherd, and we see Him as Sovereign King coming in the future, soon and coming king, and we see him as our future chief shepherd, as it was mentioned in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. You can read that on your own when you get home. But he is coming to do what with his sheep? According to that verse, do you all know? You look it up, it's very interesting, because he's coming to reward his sheep. Amen. I'm excited about that, brother. I'm looking forward to that. Our king is coming, and he's got his, his reward with him, the Bible says, when he comes. So the, this psalm, Psalm 24, and all of these psalms here really are all about the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read Psalm 24 together. It's only 10 verses. Uh, it'll give you a good idea of the, of, of the setting as we break it down. So it says, uh, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him. They seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Amen? Now that's Selah. You know what that means, right? That means sit down a while and think about it. Just pause right there. Take that home with you and just meditate on that, brother, and let that sink in on you. That. That's good right there. We're going to talk about this and break it down a little bit. And I want to show you, first of all, let's, let, let's identify the, the word that's repeated. There's a phrase that's repeated. We'll get to that. But six times in this psalm, in ten verses, it uses the name of God, Lord. Capital O, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What is that word? What is that Hebrew word? That is Jehovah. 
right? So Jehovah, what is he? The, the, the Lord, when it says the Lord, that word is used like about 6,000 times in the Bible. And, uh, and what does it mean? It, it tells us something about our God. It tells us that, number one, he is the self-existent one. He is the eternal I am. Now, that's interesting because we're going to come back to that. Because you remember what Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Right? He said, before Abraham was, past tense, I am. He, he am now, he was then, still I am then. He's I am now and he'll be I am forever because he is Jehovah. He is the everlasting, uh, the all-sufficient one. And he is the eter- eternal I am. And guess what else? He is also... Um, the great original. There is no origin implies that there is creation. So it cannot apply to God. See, He has no origin because there is no creator. He is the creator. And the child asks, where does God come from? That's a good question, you know, because we're created beings. We can't think outside that realm. That's a natural question for a young child to ask. Well, where did God come from? Everything else came from somewhere, came from somebody, came from something. He said, well, God came from nothing. He came from nowhere. He always existed. Boy, that, that blows my mind. Can you imagine? You just got to accept it by faith. You don't have to understand everything, right? Amen? But that's God, and this is the God that it's talking about here. Now, there's some other things about this word Jehovah I want to show you. Uh, let's hold your place there. Let's go back to Genesis. Look at the, we're going to look at the first time the word, uh, for the name for God, Lord, is used in the Bible. But I want to look at Genesis 1 first, because it's in Genesis 2. But in Genesis 1, we have, look at verse 1, you know that verse, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's a different name for God, that's Elohim, okay? And, uh, and, and you'll see that, the strong one. And you see the plurality there in that word, implying the Godhead. And if you look throughout, look at uh, verse 3, and God said, and verse 4, and God saw. And throughout that whole chapter is the same word, it is God. There is no mention of Jehovah, no mention of Lord, all caps, in Genesis chapter 1. But then we get to Genesis chapter 2. And look what happens in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, where did that, why did that not appear in chapter 1 and why did it appear in chapter 2? Well, because something happened at the end of chapter 1 that's very significant. And that was God created man And he created him in a special way according to verses 26 and 27. And what was that? He created him, man, in his image. After that, Brother Mark, something began to happen that was relational. See, now this is also this Lord, this is our relational term for God. Okay, and so he's not only now is he the the self uh, existent one, the eternal I am, but he's also the one who reveals himself. Because see, you couldn't know God, you couldn't figure God out in your mind because it's not natural. Because we think in the natural mind, God must reveal himself. 
And so this is God revealing himself in chapter 2 in a relationship setting with Adam and with his creation. And then the last thing I want to say about this in chapter 3, just flip on over there a little bit further, and in verse uh, verses 9 through 13, you see, I'll just read you verse 9. It says, And the Lord God again called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou, Adam? And you see God here taking the initiative to restore or to bring redemption or restoration back to Adam. So this word Lord now is also, not only is it relational, but it's also redemptive in nature. And that is the word that is used in this psalm. So let's go back to Psalm 24 and let's look at this together. Let's look at the first verse and let's talk about that. It says, uh, verse 1 says, "The, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. So we see God in this verse as the creator, and not only the creator, but ultimately the sovereign ruler of all that he created. Amen? And we see that was mentioned in the New Testament a number of places. You, we could go to Colossians 1.16 where it says about the Lord Jesus Christ that he made everything and he was placed above all power and all dominion. And then we could go over to Hebrews, the verse that Brother Rogers shared in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 where it says that he's the express image of God and that he upholds all things by the word of his power. You see... And then, of course, the most famous, one we're probably most familiar with, is John 1. In the beginning was God. And right? And so, and then he goes on to say down in verse 3 that there was not anything made that was not made by him. So we see God though in in the in in this psalm here as not only the creator, but also the sovereign ruler of his creation. Now, as I was thinking and meditating on that, Brother Ed, I had to think that. You know, when we look around us, I mean, you have to have a, you have to say something's not right. If God's a sovereign ruler, then what in the world's going on in this world? And I got to thinking about it, you know, God, He is sovereign. He's in total control. You understand? He has all power. He has all authority and all dominion. And you know what He's done with all that authority and power? is he's agreed, he's decided that I'm going to give man a free will. Does that violate his sovereignty in any way? No, because he's the one that has the power and the authority to decide if you have a free will or not. And he's decided that I'm going to give man a free will. So while everything else is operating underneath the authority and sovereignty of, the, of, the, of God, of its creator... You see the animals, they, I mean, you're here in the winter, you see the migrating geese, they're following God's sovereign plan. They're, they're, so, they're under His control. But human beings have a free will. And you can choose to do it, or you can choose not to at this time. But it won't always be that way. There's coming a time when the choice will be over. Your time of choosing will be done. So don't forget that, that God is ultimately the ruler, even though right now it's by invitation or by, by uh, choice. I mean, you have to invite God to, to, to rule over your life, don't you? By humbling yourself and asking Him to be the Lord of your life. But I will say this, look at verse 2. Very interesting. Not only is He the sovereign ruler and creator, but look how He founded it. Verse 2, For He hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. I mean, how, how stable is water? 
<laughs> Have you ever tried to build any? Would, would you ever try to build a house on water? <laughs> it better be a boathouse, right? I mean, water's not too stable for a foundation, uh, Brother Mark, unless it's God that's the builder. I think he's showing here that I can build this on whatever I want to, and it don't matter because ultimately what the Lord Jesus Christ is upholding everything with the word of his power. You see, matter of fact, over in, uh, in Psalm 26, verse 7, it says that he hung the earth on nothing. And, uh, the famous uh, preacher S.M. Lockridge said, he said he hung the earth on nothing and told it to stay there. And that's what it's done. It stayed there. It ain't moving. It's hanging on nothing. But God, I mean, he doesn't need a, a strong foundation because he is the foundation. And then I want to look at some things here about, about what God is in his people, okay? Because it looks like you get to this verse 3. Look at verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Who do you think is worthy to do that? I'm, I'm going to tell you the answer is no one. There is none except for one, and that is the King of glory we're talking about tonight. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's righteous to stand in that place. Now, so in other words, for us to stand there, how must we do it? In Him. There's no other way, but it is in Christ. It is Him in us and through us and His righteousness that has been imputed to our account that gives us the ability to approach God in this holy hill. So when it's talking about here these things about uh, who it is that ascends into this hill and who it is that stands in this holy place, I'm going to tell you that is the Lord Jesus Christ, but it can be us if we let Him be in charge of our life. If He's the one doing it in us. Because look at verse 4. I'm going to show you some things about Him that should be in us. Y'all with me? Look at verse, uh, verse 4. It says, He hath clean hands and a pure heart, and hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor swore deceitfully. So let's look at that. What, what is it about the Lord? He's got clean hands. You know what that means? That all His actions are right. When you think of hands, you think of work. You think of something being done, right? Of doing something. So it means that God's doings, the Lord Jesus Christ's doings or His works are right and they're just. And number two, you see He's got what? A pure heart. Now we're talking more about our our motives, our feelings, our emotions. So we could say that not only is God's works, are they always right, but His ways are always right. Always. The motive is always pure. Cannot be questioned. And by the way, that's what the devil did in the garden. When he came to Eve and said, uh, you know, first of all, he wanted to cause her to hath God said. That was the first thing, to doubt the word of God. Then he said, oh, you shall not surely die. Well, then he just denied the word of God. And then he questioned God's motive by saying, you know, God knows if you do this, you'll be like he is. Like God was jealous. You understand? He is jealous, but not in that way. He's not envious. Let's put it that way. So, let's move on. It says not only does he have a pure heart, but he also has honest speech. So, God cannot lie. He, uh, his, his ways, his works are, are pure. His ways are pure. And ultimately, his words are always true. And when you see that word, I just want to give you this, just add this to you. It says... 
It says, it hath not lifted up his soul into vanity. When you see that a lot of times in your Bible, it implies an idol, something that's idolatrous. It's something that's not real. It's, it's vain or it's empty and has no use. And that's what he's talking about here, that this, this is, he's looking unto the true and living God. And then look at verse 5. I'll show you some other things about the Lord. Not only is the Lord uh, completely holy and full of truth, but the Lord is also the source of all blessing and righteousness. Look at verse 5. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from, from the God of his salvation. So I want to say about that, the blessing, what is the blessing? I think it's favor. I think the Bible says in Psalm 22, verse 1, that, uh, let me think of the verse for just a second, but it says, a good name is rather to be desired than riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. So favor of God, have you ever thought about that? I mean, what would that, I mean, if you had the favor of God, what else would you need? I mean, the one that has everything. There's nothing else we need. And I see this blessing here is, is ha- that means God's favor on your life. And then I see not only that, but I see righteousness. And of course, that is the imputed righteousness that we have to our account from the Lord Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, y'all know that verse where it says that God hath made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, so the only way we're righteous is in Christ. But it is that righteousness that has been imputed to our account. And then, look at that. The Lord is the God of, of his God of salvation. You know, it is the Lord only that can, that can save us, right? And I mean save us not only eternally, but what about saving us every day? Brother John, I mean, I, sometimes I get in a pickle. I just need to be saved. I need to be delivered out of some trouble. Sometimes trouble I got myself into. Sometimes trouble other enemies and people have brought against me. You know, we got some enemies out there. Y'all know that, right? I mean, you got three main enemies. You got to face the world, and that's against you. You know, the reason the world's against you is because it's controlled by the prince and power of this air. It's controlled by the devil, and it's completely contrary to God. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that it's intimate with God. It means it cannot be reconciled, Brother Mark. There's no possible way. So it's always going to be that way. We're always going to have to fight against the world. And then we got what? The old man, the flesh. We got to face him every day. We got to wake up with him. So, so this, the God of, uh, of salvation, the, he delivers me not only from sin and death and eternal salvation, but he delivers, delivers me from my enemies in this life, giving me everyday salvation over the world, over the the lustful desires of my own flesh, and then, of course, over the devil who uses both of those things against me. Amen? And that's the way he works. And so, I want to wrap this up, and I don't even know what time I'm supposed to be done, but um, I won't keep you long tonight. i got just a couple more points here, and, uh, and we'll let you go to the house tonight. All right? So, let's look at, uh, there's going to be a change right here. Let's read verse 6, and then I'm going to explain this change to you. It says, this is the generation of them that seek him, that seek his face, O Jacob, Selah. So again, stop and think about that. And now these last four verses here, now he's going to start to really zero in on who is this king of glory. He's going to want, uh, he's going to zero in on who he is. And uh, he starts by discussing, really, 
I think that he's discussing Jesus' entrance into heaven. We'll see this, and, and, and a lot of people believe, researching this and studying, reading a lot of guys, what they thought about this. They think David wrote this psalm when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem after it had been gone to the Philistines. And so, isn't it interesting how God, you know, a man that's, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I don't think these men necessarily knew that they were writing scripture, but but God was writing down, David was writing about an event that was happening then, and God was applying it toward not only what was happening then, but what's going to happen here with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see that a lot of times in scripture, that there's that, that scripture has relevance to that moment that was happening right there, but boy, it's got some relevance to what's coming down the road with the Lord Jesus Christ that those guys had no idea about that were writing it down. And look at this right here. I think this is one of those uh, one of those verses here. So let's look at this entering of the king into his city. And I, and I read this. I thought this was interesting, Brother Ed. You know, we don't come from a land with a king. So we don't understand that too much. But um, they said that when the king of England comes in the gate there into London, they said that they... And this is not just for them, but we'll use them as an example here. But other ancient kings have, have taken these verses and applied it to themselves. That when he comes up in his carriage and his entourage with him, it's like the gatekeeper is going to say, who is it? And, and the herald's going to say, it's the king of England. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to open the gate, and they're going to come in, and there's going to be all kind of fanfare, right? I mean, it's going to be fantastic. Well, that's really what we have here is we have this, um, this in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Now, lifting up your head, I, that, that didn't make sense to me at first. But I wasn't thinking about the right kind of gate. I wasn't thinking about a wall that was level, okay, with a gate that went up. And so then when the gate would ascend up, well, it would look like it got a head on it, right? Because it would stick up above the rest of the wall. And, of course, somebody would, they would enter and then the gate would come down. And so couldn't help but think about the Lord Jesus. You know, there's a repeat on this verse here. Y'all, did y'all catch that? Why is it mentioned twice? I don't know. I mean, sometimes the Bible mentions things because it wants to make sure you get it. I mean, it's important. Repeat it again. Verily, verily. I mean, truly, truly. Significance. Sometimes it'll repeat that because it's significance. And that certainly, this is certainly significant. And no doubt that applies in this situation. But I'm going to tell you, I think it also is very likely that it applies to the fact that the Lord is going to make two entrances back into heaven. Now, he's going, to, he's going to come. He's going to leave. He's going to come here twice. He's already come once, right? And you remember when he was here, Brother Kenneth? Uh, there was a time when he came into Jerusalem. You remember riding that little fold of a donkey there? And man, that was quite a to-do about that, wasn't there? I mean, there was some excitement. 
People were crying out, and they were even laying uh, leaves and clothing down to bring him in, and blessed is the Most High, and Hosanna, and all those things that they were, they were saying there. That was just, man, that was just a tiny, tiny little piece of what I think is happening. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in heaven? After the Lord Jesus Christ left his throne in heaven and came to the earth to be born as a man, and then when he returned back after his mission was accomplished, boy, and put back and sat down at the right hand of the Father, you think there was some excitement in heaven? Boy, I bet you there was something going on like they ain't never seen before, brother. I'm telling you. But I, I, I got to say that the difference in his coming, look at the way these, these two things are phrased here. Look what it says. We read verse 7. Now look at verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. That's the way it describes the Lord Jesus Christ in his return to heaven to take his rightful throne. And is he not our great captain? Is he not our, our, the, the Savior that won our, our freedom from sin, hell, and death? But look what it says the next time. Look at verse, uh, let's go down to verse 9. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now that Lord of hosts, I was shocked, brother Ed, how many times that's in the Bible. I tried to look it up to give you all some references, and my concordance wouldn't even print them all. It's like 200 and something times that exact phrase is used in the Bible, and uh, 220 of those are in the prophets. The prophets. Now, there were some mentions in, in the, before that in the historical books, and those pertained to mostly around one man. You can imagine who that probably was. It was David. And the reason is because what is the Lord of hosts? What does that tell us about God? How would you describe that name of God? That's his... That's his battle name. That's his, that's his commander-in-chief name. See, he's the Lord of the host. And, uh, and you know, the first time it says there, it didn't say anything about the host. It was just the Lord by himself, mighty and strong. And I was thinking about how quietly the Lord Jesus Christ entered into creation the first time I mean it wasn't but a few people even noticed a couple of kings wandering around you know saw it later and come to check on him right and of course Mary and Joseph but other than that maybe a couple of animals nobody else was paying any attention boy he entered in just so quiet and all alone but the second time doesn't describe him that way it says the Lord of hosts. You know when the Lord comes back the next time, he's not coming alone. Did y'all know that? There's going to be an army with him. I was looking up some of the different things that it says about that. Let me just give you some of the things that it says about him. Well, first of all, he came in silence the first time. The second time, how is he going to come? He's going to come with the, with the a voice of an archangel and with the trump of God. And you're going to have an army coming with him. And after the judgment then he's going to go back again. But that, that coming is described 
many times there were, you know, this, this army's going to come with them, but they're not going to be involved in anything that's going on, but they're going to be there just to, I guess, pr- applaud him, to worship him, to glorify him. I'm looking forward to it, but there's a certain group that's going to be coming with him. So we see he's the Lord of hosts here in the second time, and we see him coming in power, and we see that, uh, that he is described here as, look at this, what it says about him. It says, not only is he the Lord of hosts, he is again called the King of glory. And then it says Selah. Well, that's something there for us to stop and think about. And I don't want us to forget that, but I want to just finish with a thought that's relevant to us and it's relevant to anybody that may be listening, especially someone that might not be saved. Because there's a phrase there at the end of both of those verses where it says, the king of glory shall come in. And then again, it says in verse 9 at the end, the king of glory shall come in. What a a gracious and merciful God we have. The Bible says that he's knocking at the door. And he's talking about there at the church door. He's talking to the church at Laodicea and saying, hey, I'll come in if y'all let me. You know what? He's knocking on people's hearts too. And if you'll just open that door, he, he's not far away. He's just a, a call and a belief away from coming in to our life. And when he comes in, things change, don't they, Brother Mike? Things change. And... Um, I thought about His mercy. I thought about how gracious He is. I'm so thankful that He will come in if we'll ask and if we'll cry to Him. But our responsibility now is we've got to forsake all those vanities. We've got to give up all that vain help. And by the way, He'll not only come in for eternal salvation, but if you're already saved, He'll also come in if we'll ask Him in our everyday life for the difficulties that we face. I was thinking about, and I was even sharing this, I think, with my uh, my sons, or maybe Faith may have been there too, but we were talking about some of this stuff, and um, I was remembering back to, man, I got myself in some trouble. I mean, uh, I was in a, in a squeeze one time that I couldn't get out of. I had no way to get out of. I was in a trap, and um, I was praying for and asking God to help me, and it was... Um, it was back in the end of, uh, it was actually at the beginning of 2016. And uh, at that time, I had sold the building I was practicing in, and I was trying to get another space to practice, and my time was up. I had to get out, and I had nothing except for now people wanting to put a 10-year lease over my head that I didn't want <laughs> in, a, in a piece of, of property uh, of office I didn't want to be in, and there was no other options, nothing that I could do. And all of a sudden, I'm supposed to go sign the contract the next week. On a Saturday afternoon, I'm walking around, working around my shop, and all of a sudden, the phone rings, and it's the attorney and, and the owner of this, uh, this complex, and she says, I think we ought to do a 12-year lease until we get your space right. And I said, God. I said, that was God. There was nobody else that could help me, brother. It was just God did it. He changed their heart, and then, then the rest is history. Then he opened up another door for us to buy another building and all that thing, and we just love where we are, and we're thankful to God for it. But what I'm saying is, is that we, if we're here tonight and we're saved, 
Boy, that, that God of our salvation doesn't end there. The God of our salvation is the God of our deliverance from trouble today. And some trouble we get ourselves into, some trouble the world brings us into, or the devil gets us into us. But the God of our salvation is still there. He's just a cry away. He's just, I mean, but it, it takes a cry sometimes. Because that means that, Brother Ed, we've forsaken all those vanities. We've exhausted all of our resources. There's nothing left that we can do. Now, I'm ready to cry out to God. And that's when God's listening. If you look at the Bible, there's a difference between what happens when people pray and when people cry. You watch and you look through that and you see what happens when people cry. God does some things that are just unbelievable throughout the Bible. So he's, no, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever as, as Brother Rogers been preaching on. He can't change. It's impossible. He's immutable. So he still do that for us today. He has no, he's not short uh, in any way of doing that for us today. So I'll leave you with these questions. Who is this King of glory? Well, I think we've identified him as the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'll say this. Is there anything hard for him? No. Ask you another question. Is there anything more important than him? I think tonight, my challenge for us all is that we practice that Selah. And we kind of just take a stop for a minute and forget about everything that's going on in the world and all the stress that we all facing. I mean, with the, with the, if you're not worried about the sickness, you're worried about the economic uh, consequences of the sickness. And, and everybody's got to be worried about the direction of our country and our government and everything else and, and what's going on at the church house and our family and all those other all those wonderful things. But you know what? Selah. Just stop and take a break for a minute. Answer that question. Who is this King of glory? He's got everything under control. He's still sovereign ruler. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, for the day, God, and thank you for the psalm that you've given us here, Lord, the truth that's therein. And Lord, I pray that we would look to you Literally, Lord, just cry out, Lord, in our need and trust you completely, God, knowing that you alone are able. And we give you all the glory and honor. And it's for Jesus' sake that we pray. Amen.